0: Um, you know, uh, Tom mentioned changes in rhythm. Sometimes sometimes God changes the rhythm or changes the routine. It kind of causes us to, to reflect and to come back to Him. Um, so usually I'm a, I get up around 4.30, 5 in the morning every day, um, just an early bird. And, uh, and as many of you guys know, I, I work at, uh, I am one of the senior leadership at Chick-fil-A. I'm helping kind of start this new store in, 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 uh, in Riverside. Uh, and in the last three days, I've been uh, working like 12-hour days until <laughs> like 1 in the morning every day. Um, and so I'm exhausted. I am just exhausted. And so um, I just want to take this opportunity to go before God that He just kind of uh, intervene uh, in all the things that are going on here this morning and that He would just even uh, be victorious in, in, in my weakness and my flesh uh, and that, and that uh, he, he would be the winner this morning, so if you guys would just uh, bow with me once again, I know Chad just prayed, but I just, I to me, it's always important to pray before I preach. So, join me as we just go before God with that um, openness for Him to act, Heavenly Father, God. I just pray for Your action in our lives today. God, I pray for Your um, energy in my in my body today. And Lord, that we wouldn't let technical difficulties, we wouldn't let temperature, we wouldn't let any kind of discomfort uh, get in the way, God, of your truth, of your word, of your love for us, and our ability to um, hear and understand your love for us. Father, I just ask that we just be able to receive that and receive that well this morning. And God, interrupt any agenda that I have that is not yours. Lord, do not let me say a word that will not glorify and honor you. How do we ask that you just pour into me that, that would overflow into all of us, that our lives might be changed this morning and that we would be moved that we would just not learn something, but we would be moved by your truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're uh, continuing this series on an sh- sh- unshakable faith. Just exploring within the Psalms, particularly mostly within the Psalms, about what this unshakable faith looks like. About what a faith that is just unrelenting, pursuing, passionate, uh, eager to learn how to praise, how to pray, and how to develop a deeper personal relationship with God. And just looking at how do we hold on to faith in the midst of trials, in the midst of depression, in the midst of heartache, disappointment, in the midst of celebrations, how do we keep focused on God? And today we're going to be studying a particular psalm, Psalm 31. Um, I find a very powerful psalm. It's a long psalm, but a very, very powerful psalm. And before we read it, I just want to prepare us a little bit about what, about what that psalm is about. Right. So one of the things you're going to see in this psalm is that it's kind of all over the place. It's kind of all over the place. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not as organized as many psalms uh, typically are. Um, and, it, and this psalm fits within a category of psalms that we call lamenting psalms. They make up about a third of the psalms in the Old Testament. And these lamenting psalms just means that that is coming from a person, from, a, from that, particularly David, who's in a place of, of weeping, of crying. He's in a place of pain, a place of heartache. Place of hurting, and so he's lamenting. He's crying to God. He's pleading for God to do something. Um, and in its specifics, uh, it, it, it prays out a very specific request before God, asking God to uh, intercede in his life in this time of desperate need. But at the same time, we find a spirit of thanksgiving. We find a spirit of joy in appreciating what God has already done. Um, You will see, though, that this, this, this psalm thematically jumps around a lot. Right? And typically, uh, we do see psalms have structures. And so a lot of times, lamenting psalms still have uh, places in which we see uh, uh, not just requests and not just complaints, but we also see places where, uh, of thanksgiving, of appreciation, of praise. Right? But usually it's structured in a way that, we, that it, it makes sense. There's a kind of a logical flow to it. But as I said, this, this psalm thematically is much more um, kind of spontaneous all over the place. It jumps around a lot. So notice that, look for that as we, we read the psalm this morning. And know that the psalm comes from a place uh, where the author is broken, is hurting, is desperate. Right? So a lot of people theorize when, when psalms were written, uh, at, at what point in David's lives or some of the lives of the people who wrote the psalms. Uh, and it's believed that this psalm was written during the, the season in which David was fleeing from Saul. Right, he's on the road, he's running from Saul for his life, uh, hiding, living in caves. Uh, and it's just kind of a, maybe a dark season of David's life. And that's part of where, where this kind of hurting, this lamenting, this brokenness. Like, what have I done, God? I'm despised among so many. What have I done? And that's where this psalm is being written from. This is, you can imagine, just empathize with the heart of, of, of David at that point. All right, we're going to see a psalm that's about hurting A psalm that comes from brokenness. And yet it's a psalm that's thankful and it's hopeful. What a range of emotions. What a range of emotions uh, we're going to see. But part of, I even want us uh, to be prepared for, is recognize that part of what this psalm does is it simply complains to God. It's quite, quite honestly, just simply complains to God. Let's go ahead and take a look at the psalm. We're going to read through it together. As I said, there's quite a few, quite a few verses, and actually a large portion of what we're going to be doing today is just walking through these verses together, just looking at them and asking some honest questions as we do. And today I'm reading from NLT. As I said, I bounce around between translations, but today I'm reading from NLT. Starting up on verse one, Psalm 31, verse one. It says, "O Lord, I have come to you for protection." Don't let me be disgraced. Save me, for you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me. Rescue me quickly. Be my rock, a protection, a fortress where I will be safe. You are my rock and my fortress. Just notice, he he clings to God and he calls God a fortress. He does this twice, back to back, right? So this is an important theme. Um, David is praying to a God who he sees as his fortress in life. And it says, for the honor of your name, lead me out of this danger. Pull me from the trap of my enemies set for me, for I find protection in you alone. I entrust my spirit into your hand. Rescue me, Lord, for you are faithful to God. So, looking at that, that verse, just sorry, one of the other fascinating things about the Psalms is it's actually one of the most quoted Psalms within the Bible. As you think about what prophets, and, and within the New Testament, Jesus, it's one of the most quoted uh, psalms within, within the Bible. And in that uh, beginning of verse 5, it says, I entrust my spirit into your hand. Um, that actually is believed to be probably these, the same uh, uh, words that Jesus said uh, when he said, uh, into your hands I commit my spirit. Right? But it's just, obviously, it's just different patterns of translations. So this is coming from, directly from Hebrew into English, uh, Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic, which would then have been written in Greek in the New Testament and then translated to English. So There's just a few different steps there. But you can read that that's, that's effectively they're saying the same thing. And it's likely this is exactly what Jesus was quoting. I entrust my spirit into your hands. I trust you with my life. I trust you with my life, God. And then it says, I hate those who worship worthless Idols. Strong language. I hate those who worship worthless idols. I trust in the Lord. Right? So this is here, there's this contrast between worthless idols, between um, anything that we choose to worship that is not God. Right? And a lot of a lot of people define that as what what, you know within the Christian world would find that as what an idol is. Anything we let take the place of God in our life, we trust instead of trusting God. That that becomes an idol. Anything we adore instead of adoring God, that becomes an idol. Right? And so there's there's this kind of concern, warning, I hate those who worship worthless idols. I contrast that to I worship God. Uh, Jonah quotes this verse six. He says, "I hate those who worship worthless idols." Um, that, that's a, he, he says that in his prayer. Jonah the prophet. Picking up in verse seven, I will be glad and rejoice in your unfailing love, for you have seen my troubles, and you care about the anguish of my soul. Um, consider those words this morning. Can you care about the anguish of my soul? Um, do you believe that? Like, do you really believe that? Do you believe that God cares about the anguish of your soul? Is that a truth you've come face to face with? That in whatever kind of a disappointment, whatever kind of a heartache, that God sincerely cares about that anguish. That disappointment, the fear, right? And that's such a powerful thing to pray, and it's such a powerful truth to proclaim. God, you care about the anguish of my soul. I know it. I know it. All right, we're going to come back to those words uh, at the end here. Picking up at verse eight, you have not handed me over. You have not handed me over to my enemies. Have set me in a safe place. I say this is kind of, kind of flipping it around. He's like saying, first he's talking about like, save me from this. And now he's saying, you have saved me. I'm in a safe place. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am in distress. Tears blur my eyes. My body and soul are withering away. I am dying from grief. My years are shortened by sadness. Sin has drained my strength. I am wasting away from within. Right, there's some of that complaining that I, that I alluded to earlier, right? Tears are blurring my eyes. I am dying from grief. I'm so sad. I'm so broken. I'm so disappointed. And I'm just dying inside. Right, once again, I ask can you relate to that place in life? That place of dealing with that kind of disappointment, that kind of sadness where you feel like your whole world is falling apart and collapsing underneath you, things you want seem most distant, just kind of a bleak future in front of you, whatever it is, right? Um, Can you relate to that place in life? I am dying from grief. Honest words. Can you empathize with David here as you think about where he's at in life? Right. He's being pursued. His life is at stake. Um, and, And David didn't do anything. That's one thing you can look at that story between David and Saul. There wasn't this, you know, David didn't plot anything against Saul. This was all Saul's jealousies that he's rebuking and fighting and wanting to kill David, and David flees. But this is a place of just, why? Why? Verse 11. I am scorned by all my enemies and despised by my neighbors. Even my friends are afraid to come near me. When they see me on the street, they run the other way. I am ignored as if I were dead, as if I were a broken pot. I have heard the many rumors about me, and I am surrounded by terror. My enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life. This is also quoted by Jeremiah I'm surrounded by terror once again, this is just showing us this place of brokenness, of loneliness, of anguish that David is in. But I'm trusting you, O Lord, saying, "You are my God. My future is in your hands. Rescue me for those who hunt me down. Rescue me from those who hunt me down relentlessly. Let your favor shine on your servant in your unfailing love. Rescue me. So several things to reflect here. These couple of verses. Right? It goes from um, I am trusting you to you are my God. Think about what that expression means. You are my God. You are what I worship, you are what I desire, you are what I need. Right? You're not an idol to me. I don't want an idol. I don't want to adore, I don't want to, I don't want to find hope, I don't want to find security in anything else. You are my God. You are what I want. You are what I trust. Right, that, that's what, such, um, once again, it's a powerful proclamation for us to even say to our own hearts. God is my God. Right, not an idol, not money, nothing else. And then it goes from this, and then it transitions to say, my future is in your hands. Right? My future is in your hands. Uh, it ends with, and then it ends with this expression of God's love. Right? It's just this whole picture that I trust you with my life. I trust you with my soul. Everything I have is in front of you in your net and your arms to keep safe. You are what I worship. You are what I want. And I trust you, because I love you, because I know you love me. Do you trust God's love? It's part of what's being expressed here in these few verses. The author, David, is expressing, I trust your love for me. I am convinced of your love for me, and I trust your love for me. I'm willing to to gamble my life on on your love for me. I just reflect on that question this morning. Do you really trust God's love for you? And maybe there might be another question is where in your life are you not trusting God's love for you? Where in your life do you doubt God's love for you? Right, this, is, this is a powerful example for us. Uh, last week, uh, I talked about this, this love of God and what, what that means for us, maybe even a way that we can think about it. And one of the things that I said is that um, our worth is not determined by who we are. Our worth isn't determined by the things we do or the accomplishments we've made. That's not what makes us uh, uh, worthy. That's not what it attributes worth to our life, just like, you know, everything else in life. Something's worth isn't really determined by what, what, what it actually does. I was thinking about this, like, with the engagement rings. Somewhere I heard, I don't I think it was a class years ago, it was like an economics class, and they said there's about three times more diamonds than there are people uh, who are actually able to buy or willing to buy them, right? So, th- so this isn't a supply problem. There's plenty of supply. Why are they so expensive? Because people are willing to pay that much for them. And it's not like you put on an engagement ring and you got superpowers, right? Like, what does it do? <laughs> it's literally this thing that you put on your finger and now you're scared to, like, lose. Like, it's my wife. Like, she has, when she has her actual engagement or, or her, her wedding ring on, like, she's just, she's terrified of everything. Like, she doesn't want anything to touch her hand. She won't go in water. She won't, everything. She's terrified of everything. So, what does it actually do? Right? But, but the, the worth of that diamond isn't really established by what it, what it offers you. It isn't really even established. In this case, it's not established by what the supply is. There's enough supply out there. It's established by what people are willing to pay for it. Right? And likewise, we look at the, what the point of the gospel shows us. God was willing to pay. Jesus was willing to pay for you with his life. That's worth. That's a statement about Love. That's a real statement about God's love for you. Do you trust that? Do you trust God's love? Do you really, can you really, in the same language of, of David, you are my God, my future is in your hands. Life or death, sickness or health, pain or peace, my future is in your hands, God. Picking up in verse 17, he says, don't let me be disgraced. And he goes, I trust you, but don't let me be disgraced. Oh Lord, for I call out to you for help. Do not neglect me, God. I'm calling for you. Don't neglect me. I, like, I, I, because I'm asking you, God, now I, kinda, I know I, I can trust you. Let the wicked be disgraced. Let them lie silent in the grave. Silence their lying lips, those proud and arrogant lips that accuse the godly. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. Don't, don't ignore me, right? Don't, 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 uh, don't ignore me as I plead for you. And then he flips around. How great is the goodness for you have stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. And here's some of this rejoicing and thanksgiving. Praise the Lord, for he has shown me the wonders of his unfailing love. He kept me safe when my city was under attack. In panic, I cried out. I am cut off from the Lord, but you heard my cry. You heard my cry for mercy and answered my call to help. And here's, it's kind of pointing to something in history, right? He's he's alluding to some event in which he was, he felt cut off from God, that he was in distress, and he called out to God, and God heard his his answer for help. Sorry, God heard his his cry for for help, and and he answered it. In, the, in the, some past, um, what, what is your history with God during times of anguish? You kind of think through your, your life and the anguish that you've had and those times that you've clung to God. Um, what's been your history? What's been your testimony of God during this time of anguish? Would you have a similar word as David? All right, I cried out to help. In panic, I cried out. I can look back and I'm thankful for everything you brought me through. Has God delivered you from a place of panic to a place of peace? Uh, The next sentence I think is really for us this morning. Verse 23. Love the Lord, all you godly ones. Love God. Like really, love God. Give him the time of your day. Give him the energy of your life. Give him the consideration and the praise he deserves. He is good. He is good to you. I love him. All right, Love the Lord, all you godly ones, for the Lord protects those who are loyal to him, but he harshly punishes the arrogant. So be strong and courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. So it's, it's interesting that there's so many commentaries that talk about the um, disorganization or the lack of organization within this psalm, right? At least that it's so different from the kind of ways that uh, other psalms are organized, right? Many commentators recognize that the psalm is really completely unorganized. All right, usually there's a kind of a pattern that we detect within psalms, especially lamenting psalms. It's this kind of reoccurring pattern, and oftentimes it uses even similar language. Right? When, you, when you actually you study the psalms and you get really into the study of the psalms, it becomes predictable. Right? It almost becomes predictable that you can kind of read the flow of it and you can kind of know, okay, what's going to come next? It's going from this place of praise. Now it's going to go into a place of thanksgiving. Now it's going to go into a place of requests. Like you can kind of see this predictable pattern. Um, psalms pray about different things, um, and yet we see kind of a similar structure in them. Right? There's kind of a structure to these prayers. I think about like a five-paragraph essay. I know we have a couple of English teachers uh, uh, in, in, the, in the room. Right? You think about a five-paragraph essay, something we learn in school. Right? You have your uh, introduction paragraph in which you have a thesis that kind of defines what's the point, what's the, what's the message, the argument that's being given here. And then you have, a, you have three paragraphs, or if it's longer than five paragraphs, you have more paragraphs. These are kind of what we call body paragraphs. That all have these like topic sentences, right? And that kind of within it, you can kind of see this flow, this natural flow. This, there's this kind of an organization to the essay. And then there's this conclusion. It contains a summary, right? Kind of what, what has been said or what has been argued, right? And so someone reading a five-paragraph essay will kind of be able to see this predictable pattern of organization. It's predictable pattern within, within five-paragraph essays across the board. This psalm is anything but organized like that. It doesn't fit a structure like other psalms do. right? I, I probably looked through about a dozen books and commentaries on the psalms, and, and I looked at, you know, many of them talk about how there is not a good, solid structure to the psalm, or at least it's kind of uh, disorganized in so many ways. Um, but I couldn't find within 12 commentaries and books on it, um, any of them that kind of agreed upon, upon how and why the flow of the psalm works the way that it does. Right, It doesn't start with a plead for God to listen, like a lot of lamenting psalms. And then it expresses a problem that communicates a trust in God and finally closes with thanksgiving. It kind of bounces around a lot more than that. Rather, you see, throughout this prayer, it's kind of more all over the place. Listen to me. But you are God. You are my fortress. But I'm in distress. I'm dying. But I trust you. But I'm being disgraced. I feel cut off. But you hear me. Right? How do you go from I feel cut off to you hear me? Right? And then it ends with be strong and courageous. Right? This kind of a kind of a, a command to his own heart, a command to the people of God. I think that aspect of the psalm is beautiful. This disorganization. There's something beautiful about that. Why? It teaches us something very, very important. Our prayers don't need to be pretty. Our prayers don't need to be pretty. They don't need to be organized. They don't need to be rehearsed. They don't need to be presentable, thought out, well-worded, strategic in its, in its intentions and its goals. We're not giving a sales pitch to God. We're not doing that. That's not what a prayer is. In our prayers, it's okay to be messy. It's okay to be unorganized. Now, some some teach, and I'm not disagreeing. I actually think it's fantastic. But some teach that prayer should have these kind of specific elements, and there should be some specific structure to your prayer. Once again, I'm not dissing it. I totally buy into it, right? But they'll say like, okay, it should start with a praise. Your prayer should start by celebrating with who God is. Why? Because it puts God in the right perspective. Right? You don't want to come before God with God in the wrong perspective. So you want to start by praising God because you want to put God in the right perspective. And then you should transition to a place of confession. Why? Because it puts you in the right perspective. It gives you an accurate view of who you are, especially before who you are before your God. Right, so now you have a good perspective of God, and now you have a good perspective of yourself. Then, be thankful. Right, go to a place of thanksgiving. Right, uh, put your crisis in perspective. What has God done in your history? Because it gives you reason to have confidence for the future. Then, then you lay out your petition. Then you lay out your request. Because now you're ready. When you have God in the right perspective, you have you in the right perspective, and you have history and your problems in the right perspective, now you're ready to really put your request before God. Right? So this is like a pattern that a lot of people will teach us. Say, we, we should pray like this. You should contain these elements in your prayer. Right? And there, some will emphasize different steps or different strategies of how to praise. And that's fantastic. I am not belittling that. Right, but sometimes people memorize uh, so, so these kind of steps, so they might remind themselves. They might remind themselves uh, to have this pattern of prayer they know is healthy. Because we, we don't want to only go to God when we have something wrong. Right? You don't want to only come to God when you have something to complain about. You don't want to do that in any kind of a relationship. Imagine if that's how like you treated your wife or your husband. Right? You only go to your wife or your husband when you have something to, to complain about. That'd be bleak. That'd be a sad, a sad marriage. right? It's not a healthy marriage. Right? Likewise, we don't want to only go to God when we want to confess something. When there's some sin in our heart. Right? We don't want to forget to praise. There are all these things. There's these kind of dynamics that we want to bring in our relationship with God. And it's important that we bring those. Right, so many people, they memorize, they have these structures of prayers so that we're hitting all those components in our prayers. And we, in many psalms, as I said, we see this kind of a pattern in which it's hitting all these different points, all these different, all these different um, components of, of a healthy prayer life. But one thing I want us to understand this morning, is that isn't necessary. It's helpful. It's very, very helpful. But isn't it necessary in every single prayer you have? All right, what we see in Psalms 31 is something different. It isn't clean and and it isn't organized. It's A little messy. And it seems like it's it's pretty honest. It doesn't look like a five-paragraph essay. Authors a little more all over the place. Doesn't seem to care about that typical structure. It bounces between fear and trust, love and panic, hope and worry. It isn't a rehearsed prayer. But there's something beautiful about that. It's a beautiful reminder that sometimes we need to just rant before our God. We need to just open our hearts up to him and let the floodgates of disappointment and frustrations and fears just come out. Let it out. One of the most critical and useful things we can learn is learn how to complain well to God. And there's a good way to complain, there's a wrong way to complain. One of, the, one, of the, one of the useful things we can learn in our Christian life is learn how to complain well to God. Um, I think some of us feel wrong doing that. Or we feel wrong, we feel weird complaining to God. For, for myself, I often think, what do I have to complain about? God has been so good to me. God has already been so good to me. How, how dare I say my life is hard right now? how dare I say, you know, you know, I'm disappointed about what's happening in my life right now? Especially for us, you know, here in America. We, we you know, I don't what the percentage of it is, but, you know, the, the majority of Americans live within the top 1% of the world in terms of wealth. Right? So it's, it's like, how, how could we possibly complain about our financial difficulties? Right? You know, or, or whatever it is. Right? And we think about the great needs around the world. How, you know, how, how can I possibly complain about my heartaches, my burdens, my problems? I might even think about my own sin, my own brokenness. How dare I complain to God? What failure I am. How dare I complain to God? How dare I rant to God? I'm but a speck, an insect in God's creation. What gives me the right? And I have two responses to that way of thinking about ranting to God. First, I think very importantly, we need to pray with honesty, but we need to keep your humility. pray with honesty, but keep your humility. never forget who you are before God when you pray. I think that's essential right if we ever just get the disturbed a picture of who God is right or if we ever get this place of being like an entitled that I God owes me something that I deserve something, because i 've been a good Christian and i 've memorized these bible verses i 'm entitled to more a more powerful prayer life, so I deserve this God right if there's ever there's a place of entitlement that that kind of complaining can definitely become very dangerous, it can become very, 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 very dangerous. That's an improper view of prayer, and, it's a, and it ultimately comes from a bad view of God. Don't forget who God is, and don't forget who you are. Right? We, we, we should pray with honesty, as long as we keep our humility. Pray with honesty, but keep your humility. Right? But the second response I have is this. Right? Um, it is exactly because we know our God, because we have a good view of who God is and thereby we then know his love that we should feel free to complain and rant right it's because of good theology that we should feel empowered to complain empowered to rant because to know God is to know his love right so if you really have a good grasp of theology then you're going to then you're going to understand what the cross really means. You're going to understand what your worth really is. You're going to know the depth, the width, the immensity of his love for you. And that that is what is so important about this psalm. It shows us how to pray in our anguish to a God we know loves us. How in this anguish we can be, whatever kind of anguish is going on in our life, whatever kind of pain, disappointment, frustration... The psalm shows us how to pray in brokenness to a God we know that loves us. And as verse 7 says, you have seen my troubles and you care about the anguish of my soul. We pray to a God who cares about the anguish of our souls. Of course we can be honest. Of course we can rant. God cares about our anguish. Even if they are in, uh, even if they're small relative to other people's problems in the world, God cares about those problems. He cares about that anguish. You see, we can be honest to those we know who love us. That's part of what we see in this psalm. The psalm is honest. There's the heart of this psalm, this prayer. It is an anguished soul praying to a God that cares. Praying to a God that loves. A soul who would be comforted, who is comforted by the love of God. You do not have to be formal with those you love. You do not have to be formal with those you love. Early on, When Nicole and I were first dating, I knew one of the first times that I realized that she really trusted me. And I knew that she loved me. Um, It wasn't something she said. It wasn't some profound statement that she made. It was when 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 I saw she no longer felt the need to put makeup on around me. She no longer felt the need to dress up around me. I know that she trusted her heart with me when she stopped dressing up. I mean, for every little occasion or get-together we had, we could just go out for I can go pick her up and go get a cup of coffee. And she can have her hair all messy, have bedhead, no makeup on, PJs, lazy clothes, whatever. That's a statement of trust. I don't have to worry about putting on a show, putting on a, on a face for you. Because I know you want me. Right? That's an expression of trust. A heart that is confident of God's love will pray without any makeup on. It will feel free to pray without any makeup on. Just real, all natural, all emotional, all raw, all real prayer. There is no need to be formal with God, There's no need to dress up our words. God isn't looking for people who are proper in prayer. Who are real in relationship? That's one of the most profound things about prayer that we could learn, <laughs> right? And there's this way, and sometimes we feel, you know, I, I see it often. People feel uncomfortable praying out loud because there's this thought or belief that oh, there's a certain way you got to do it, certain things you got to say. There's a certain norms we have to follow in prayer. I would remind us of this truth, right? Because this this is really allows us to engage. Uh, in a real relationship with God. God isn't looking for people who are proper in prayer, but who are real in relationship. Because prayer, because prayer is a natural response to a desire for real and personal relationship with God. When we want to be in real relationship with God, we are going to want to pray. That should be the thing that drives our prayer life. It's not for just for God to do things for us. It's not so that we might fit this category of good Christian. It's that we are people who are sincerely eager and wanting real relationship with God. And that prayer, prayer life will flow naturally out of that. Honest prayer is their natural response to the knowledge of God's love. Right? We have this relationship with God. We know God's love for us. We have this knowledge of God and then we have the knowledge of God's love. That will lead us to real and honest prayer. Prayer that might look like and sound like complaining and ranting. At least at times. Sound and look like complaining and ranting. Right, It's the knowledge of God's love that makes prayer so real, honest, and sometimes even messy. I just Listen to David's prayer, right? Some of these things that he says. Don't let me be disgraced. I am in distress. Tears blur my eye. My body and my soul wither away. I'm dying from grief. I'm wasting within. I'm scorned. I'm ignored. I'm surrounded by terror. Remember earlier I said, you know, I have a, sometimes I have a hard time complaining to God or talking about my circumstances because I'm thinking about like children in Africa who are starving, parentless. I'm like, who am I to complain, Right? And it's like, in the midst of what's going on in David's life, you still can put that in perspective. He had been anointed to be king. This, is, this was God's chosen person. And look, what is he saying? I'm scorned. I'm ignored. Okay, David. Right? I mean, you could put that in perspective. But that, that this knowledge of God's love is going to pour out this kind of an honesty. It's going to happen. We we know we can trust God that our prayers don't have to be perfect. God isn't trying to make, uh, sorry, David isn't trying to make his words all pretty. He doesn't care if he sounds desperate. He doesn't care. He cares about being real about what he's really feeling, about what he's really, really feeling about. He wants to make sure, he wants to ensure that he is actually being honest. Because he could go on and say, oh, you've been good to me, God. I don't feel ignored at all right now. But that wouldn't have been honest. Right? It might have been like a clear thought process of like, well, I know I feel ignored, but I really am not. Right? Like, you could see how that, that could come out. But he's just professing what his heart is feeling. He's just professing what his heart is feeling. Right. He cares about being real, he cares about being honest, because he knows God cares about the anguish of his soul. It doesn't matter how great or small that is relative to others. He just know God He just knows that God loves him, and he can trust him with that honesty. Um, this, this prayer, right in the very beginning, of this prayer, one of the things we see is that it clings to God as a fortress. Why? Because because David knows God's love. He knows God's love and he knows God's power. Right? And that's kind of what, what builds this, 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 this uh, security that God is my fortress. Is because I know both what, that, what God's heart beats for and I know that I'm in God's heart. And yet at the same time, I know what God is capable of. He's a good fortress. He's something worth trusting. He says, in the very beginning, he says, I entrust my spirit into your hands. I trust you with my life. Can you really say that about God? Can you really say that, sorry, to God? And really mean it? And then towards the end, he says, but I am trusting you, O Lord, saying, you are my God. My future is in your hands. Um, David prays. As if everything depends on it. As part of what it, what it looks like um, to entrust your life with God. To say, God, I trust you with my life. It's going to lead you to pray in a way that you believe everything depends on your prayer. Not on the properness of your prayer, but everything depends on you actually praying. You actually beseeching and pleading God for help. He prays to a God who listens and knows and loves. And because of that knowledge of God and that knowledge of God's love, he's led to trust God. He prays knowing that it makes all the difference. It's not human strategy. It's not money. It's not manpower. It's prayer that makes the difference. Now That's a powerful example for us this morning. Pray as if everything depends on it. And that, that would be a real committed prayer life. Pray as if everything depends on it. Pray like, pray like David does here. Pray like that it it really makes the difference. Right, not just as some afterthought. I've done all my hard work. I've made all my investments. I've talked to the people I need to. and now I'm going to spend my five minutes in prayer to make sure I got that last little holy blessing on it. That's, that's the wrong way to think about prayer. The right way to think about prayer is that you pray as if that's the thing you start with because that's the thing that's going to make the difference. Pray like it makes, pray like everything depends on it. David is gambling everything on his God. And that's something you see in his life. It's not as clear in the psalm alone, but that's something you see um, in his life. It's professed in the psalm. Right, into your hands I, I commit my spirit, I entrust my spirit into your into your hands, right? Um, but within his life, we see it that David is gambling everything on his God. Every other hope is a false idol to David. Anything else, right? If this, if I am trusting anything else than God, other than God, or instead of God, right? That's a false idol. Um, God is this fortress, right? That's this imagery that 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 we're, we're kind of pulling apart here, but that God is this fortress he depends on. It's this thing that he can trust his life with. It's a rock that can't be shaken, a hope that's worth trusting. Everything else isn't worth trusting. Years and years ago, as a kid, my brothers and I, we, we grew up playing paintball. We loved paintball. Uh, and we lived on this five-acre piece, uh, piece of property that's like on a mountain you know, in, uh, in San Diego, which is weird because people are like, San Diego, really? But yeah, we had a five-acre piece of property on a mountain. That's kind of like we were, we were very kind of out in the middle of nowhere on our own. Um, but on this piece of property, we played paintball like crazy, right? We loved paintball. We built these huge forts. We even built trenches, right? Like we had like, la- like forts, for- forts with like ladders on it. Like we, we got real creative with, with how we played paintball. Uh, and, and there's this uh, pile of boulders that was kind of at, at the bottom of the hills. So, like the hill all kind of comes down to this pile of boulders. When I say boulders, I mean boulders like big boulders, much, much much bigger than me. And it's this massive pile, right? And there's this kind of, you know, it's hard to explain, but a way that you can climb around in the boulders in it, which it kind of becomes like the secure fortress. It becomes like a perfect fortress, and so you can imagine a bunch of boys with the paintball guns. What they think about? Like, like they'd be playing King of the Hill. Like somebody would be camped out in this, these, these bunch of these, uh, uh, these you know boulders, and then you know other guys would try to come and take over. Uh, and so they'd have to come down this hill and kind of like raid, raid this fortress, right? Well, one day my, my mom's farrier, so you know, horse blacksmith, the guy who puts, you know, because we grew up on a farm, and the horse farrier would come like it's a month or whatever it was and put new horseshoes. Um, on the horses, he saw us playing. He's like, "Man, I really want to play." And he was like a cowboy, like over the top cowboy. Like had like a gun. Like I mean, like it was a fake gun, I guess, but I hope it was right. Got a cowboy. i was just kind of full on cowboy. And he was wanting to show a couple of us young boys um, how to how to how to really play paintball, right? Um, so he said it'll be me versus you know my brother and I. So there's two of us versus one, and we're all gearing up. Um, And he sees this, you know, as we're, you know, gearing up, he sees this, like, little cart. And when I say little cart, I mean, like, a cart that's, like, designed for five-year-olds. You know, the old little carts that you, like, you know, pedal with your feet. And he sees all these boards of woods, and he's like, I can turn that into an armored vehicle he's like, I'll kind of design and put these boards all around and get in it. And it'll be an armored vehicle. And then you guys can be in that, that, that rock fortress and just watch. I'm going to drive my armored vehicle right in there. And you're not going to have stand, stand a chance against us. And we're staring at him like he's a complete idiot. Because he's not just like a grown man. He's like a tall grown man. Right? So he gets in this. So we go down to the fort and we're watching him. Just like imagine two boys just like, what is this? old man doing, <laughs> right? And so he gets, in, he gets in this little car, and he starts putting these, um, you know, like wood boards around him, securing himself, and he thinks he's pretty good. He actually has his feet locked in a weird way, because he can't actually have them on the pedal, and it's a steep hill. It might be a cart designed for five-year-olds, but it's a steep hill. So once he starts moving at us, he starts flying at us, right? And he starts shooting his little gun, and of course, like, you know, with our giant rock you know, boulder, fortress, like it's just no point, right? We just kind of duck a little, right? And he's rolling down now. We're veterans of war. So we know the right time to shoot and the wrong time to shoot. And so we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And he's shooting and he's shooting and he's shooting. And once he gets in a good enough range, we just start... Right, and, here, and here's the thing. Like, so you know, those, they call them hoppers—the things that, that get carry your your paint, your you know, the actual paintballs themselves. We had like these 200 round hoppers with like extra, you know, 100 rounds in our pocket, ready to reload. So we're like, there's no reason to be conservative. Like, and he starts getting shot. He starts panicking, and in the moment of his panic, he drops his gun. He reaches to go grab for it. All of the boards on the cart fall over, and now he's just like a duck, coming right in front of us. He, panicked, he panics even more, turns, tries to st- st- uh, you know, stop the cart to get out. The cart literally flips over upside down, and he tries to get up and run, but because of the way he had his feet, he was locked. So he tried to get up, and he just fell over. I don't remember how we played, but if you got shot, you weren't out. So my brother and I, we took advantage of the moment, right? So we're all, and then he starts trying to crawl away Complete. We were unrelenting. We decimated this old man. Finally he gives up, right? And he confesses that was a terrible strategy. And we're like, yeah, we know. But we just took advantage. (laughs) Life is full of worthless fortresses. Worthless fortresses that when the road gets a little bumpy, everything will collapse on you. Life is full of those kinds of worthless fortresses that it looks secure and it might be a fancy and cute idea, but when real war starts, you're done. Life is full of worthless fortresses. It's full of worthless idols, worthless hopes, job security, money, our strategies, right? whatever it is. There is nothing in life more trustworthy than God's abundant love for you. That's the kind of a fortress you can count on. A God who who said, you're worth me dying for you. You're worth the cross. You're worth me absorbing and taking on the full price, the full payment of your sin. I love you that much. That's a real kind of a love. And we're dealing with a God who's not just good at stuff. He's amazing at stuff. He can do more in one second of your life than you can do in a hundred years. Pray like everything depends on it because of the kind of a god we deal with because of the kind of a love that god has for you there is nothing in life more trustworthy than god's abundant love for you that's why we can that's why we can pray complain rant and pour our hearts out to god because we know he cares about the anguish of our souls We know God cares about the anguish of our souls. He showed it to us on the cross. He's given us, he's told us in written word, and he showed us on the cross. He cares about our pain. He cares about our frustrations. He cares about our disappointments. The prettiness of your words have no impact on the security of his fortress of love for you. We don't have to have the right words. We can trust that he hears us. We can trust that he cares about us. Even even when we don't know what to ask for. Even when we're at a loss of words about what we need, about what's wrong, about what's going on in our life. when we have no idea what to say, God hears the anguish of our soul. He knows. Romans 8.26 says, The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. In other words, when our words fail, the Spirit speaks for us. He hears our heart. Even when our words fail, God's love is victorious. God cares about the honesty of our hearts, not the beauty or the correctness of our words. This psalm teaches us how to desperately pray to a God who deeply loves you. How to desperately pray to a God who Deeply loves you. It is an example of what trusting uh, God, God's love, really looks like. A way of praying like everything depends on it. Right? It's the heart of the gospel. It's about trusting in God's love. Trusting in God's love on a day-to-day life. Trusting in God's love with our problems. Trusting in God's love with our pains. Trusting God's love with our brokenness and our failures. We know, we're not, we know we're not enough. It's not about us being enough. It's about God's love being a fortress, a big enough fortress, a strong enough fortress for us. The psalm ends with an instruction. It was likely an instruction to David's own heart. It's something the prayers do. It's actually I'm going to be talking about that next week. But oftentimes, you know, psalms pray and it's, it's commanding its own heart an instruction for his own heart but it says so be strong and courageous all you who put your hope in the Lord God's love is a fortress to those who hope in him and this prayer is about honest worries pains and fears and honest soul pouring it's heart out to loving ears because of God's love because of God's desire to hear you and because of God's power Be strong and courageous, all of you who put your hope in the Lord. It's the message of this psalm. I invite you to do that this morning. I sometimes have to remind myself when I pray, drop the act. Take the makeup off. Be honest. It's actually probably one of the most common things I do in public prayer. You might even hear me do it from time to time. I say, Dear Heavenly Father, and then I stop. I stop because I'm like, oh, I'm just just reciting words. And they don't mean anything right now. Let me just pray with honesty right now. The movie, Bruce Almighty, right? Great theology. (laughs) But there's a scene in it that I think is very powerful. The very end. God's looking at, at Bruce, and He says, "Bruce, pray." And then and then and then Bruce is like, "All right, God, I ask that you bring world peace, that everyone would be happy, and that bellies would be filled." And then and then, and then God's like, "Oh, that's great. If you're trying to be Miss America, really pray." Right, and I think that sometimes I think that's a that's a word we need for God. For, you know, that's a word we need when we pray before our God. Really pray. Pray with honesty. Pray out of the anguish of your souls because you know, know God cares about the anguish of your souls. Be confident of God's love for you. Amen? Let's pray together. And actually, I'm going to ask the, the worship band, if you guys just wait a minute because I want, I want you guys <laughs> to be real in this in this prayer right now as well. Father, we come before you, Lord, just as this community, as this group of people, Lord, who are, we all face different things. We have different problems. We have different fears. Some of us, God, have financial issues going on right now. Some of us have um, marriage issues going on, have family issues going on. Some of us have, there's things in relationships that are just broken. There's heartache. There's pain. Some of us have health issues going on. God, you know every single one of our hearts. You know every single pain, fear, worry, complaint in our heart. God, and we just come before you as just a group of people. And we just want to release those fears to you, God. And we are weak. And tomorrow we're going to forget. We're going to forget to trust you the way we should. But God, the beautiful thing is that we know is that regardless of our weakness, of our failures, of our problems, God, your love is bigger than that. God, help us to trust you and really, really, really trust you, Lord, with our life. Help us to love you and really love you that we could let go of our fears, that we could let go of our worries, we could let go of our problems, that we don't have to feel like we need to strategize our whole life out. That we can just breathe. That we might be able to be still and know that you are God. You are our God. You are our fortress. Don't let us trust worthless idols. God, I pray for all the hardship in the world to keep worthless idols far from my heart. I pray for this church, God, that you bring hardship on all of us so that we might not trust and worship worthless idols, that we might just trust in you, the security of your love, the power, the power of your grace in our life. Remind us today, God, of your love. Help us be real with you day in, day out. We pray these things in your name. Amen.